0: You know, but when you get up there and you bear your soul and you're unapologetic about who you are like like heavy metal. What the hell's going on in that music? But there's a <laughs> they are up there doing their thing.
1: They are doing it
0: 110%. Welcome, fam. This is Courtney Russell Jr., and I'm here with my co-host, Emily Brocker.
1: Welcome to Humanize.
0: We are two Americans with totally different backgrounds and life experiences.
1: We're coming together on this podcast to dive right at the heart of the three things that shut down tough conversations about race, culture, power, and ego.
0: The stories you are about to hear are meant to humanize those deeply involved in social justice. Welcome to the work, y'all. Let's get it. What's going on, Humanized Family? We're back again um, with another debrief episode. You know, we usually have a guest, especially for season two, we have uh, had the pattern of having a guest, and then we debrief on the next episode just to dive deeper into the guest, what came up, um, and just let the conversation go where it may. I just wanted to ground us today, just more like getting to know Emily and I. Just in case you're new to our podcast, just in case you need a, a reintroduction, letting you know we're still here. A lot hasn't changed. I'm still that, that crazy, impulsive guy from Atlantic, Georgia. You know, I just want to do good in the world. Trying to be a creator of change. I'm originally uh, from Atlanta, um, son of immigrants just a product of an environment in which I was supposed to be dead or in jail up until this point. And, and so with this life that I'm living now, is an obligation of mine. Um, it's my duty. It's my pleasure. And I humbly accept the challenge to be a cultural shifter. I'm also very blessed and very thankful by having a co-host as brilliant as Emily Brocker. And and Emily, just to tell the people a little bit about you right now. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I am from Boston, Massachusetts, went to prep school, boarding school, Ivy League College, Um, did that whole route, worked on ranches in Wyoming during college, studied yoga intensively, martial arts intensively, (laughs) that whole route. But a lot of um, my background was in uh, international development. So traveling abroad and seeing how uh, a lot of well-intended projects imploded when people from different cultural backgrounds came together and tried to align concepts of success and and build trust with each other. So a lot of my work is around cross-cultural communication and that has logically in the states led me to looking at interracial communication, looking at power and privilege. Can't talk about culture without talking about power and privilege. Can't talk about power and privilege without talking about ego. So that's why, in the introduction, we say, you know, we're looking at culture, power, and ego, our major barriers in this work. So I now run a company, Refresh Communication, doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work. I would say I am a, a specialist in the social emotional aspects of DEI, not so much like the organizational change and how to structure things, but how to, um, I don't know if it's how to. It's like come along with me as we <laughs> get humbled, get corrected, get <laughs> you know, um I work a lot with with white folks to kind of help us all along in showing up for a world where there's justice for everyone, dignity and freedom for everyone. Um cuz that's the world I want to live in. I want to live in the world of people with, who feel good. <laughs> so that's me
0: that's awesome that's <laughs> awesome um and I think you are being a little too humble um I would I'm be honest with you if you weren't brilliant if you weren't driven if you weren't an expert in what you're talking about I wouldn't waste my time and negatively impact my brand with some bullshit so I'm in awe and I appreciate the brilliance that you bring to the world and to this work so thank
1: you thanks and I love working with you too. I learned, I've learned so much. I mean, in some ways, the podcast is like my own personal journey. Like, I love, I love finding new guests. I love being able to reach out to people. It's like the perfect excuse. Like, hey, you seem like an amazing person. Do you want to come have a really intimate conversation that we record? And oh, man, the people we've been able to meet so far. I mean, your sister, Pedro, Katrina, like oh. <laughs> Crystal, the whole, I mean, everyone is so, so amazing so far. So, so grateful for the journey. And most recently, Jeff Campbell. So let us remind you in case you didn't get a chance to listen to Jeff's episode or... um you know, if it's been a little while. So Jeff is, he calls himself a guerrilla storyteller, which is great. Um, he's based in Denver. He's a, a hip-hop artist, a spoken word artist, an arts educator. And um, he was named at one point one of Westward, which is a, a Denver newspaper, one of Westward's 100 Colorado creatives, um, written a lot of plays. And as he told us in the episode, in this last year, he started to run a program called From Allies to Abolitionists through his theater company, um, Emancipation Theater, where they take a 90-day program and they organize, um, they target a specific idea. So this is where I start to be like jaw dropped, like to hear exactly how he did this. I think we were both kind of caught off guard as to... The profound impact his work is having. So, of course, like the people involved in it, I'm sure are impacted profoundly in terms of being on a transformational journey. But what he's doing is he is targeting a very specific, very relevant topic. So, he focused on, um, I believe the gentleman's name was uh, Rivero Stinette, who had brain damage after being beat up at. Union Station. Another project was a message to the mayor around the, the homeless sweeps that were happening, or the camp sweeps, and so very you know. Targeting something that's like having someone is voting or a, a security company is their contract is up for renewal, then they organize an arts performance around it. So, like, they have Message to the Mayor, which is on our Facebook channel if you want to go check it out, which was a bunch of artists who came together and people were reading letters. And he organizes something that then the media will pick up. And it's the media who run with it and place it you know, in the newspaper, on the news channels, right at the same time that the story is running around their topic. And he has seriously impacted change, like seriously swayed votes and raised a ton of money. And I just can't believe he just started doing this because I've been in community organizing for 20 years and I'm like, holy shit, you Stumbled upon one of the best community organizing models I've ever seen. (laughs) I mean, not stumbled upon. He knew what he was doing, but it's really quick to be this effective.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree 100%. The brilliance in his work is, and the blessing as well, is that with something as volatile and as needed as activism, he quickly turned something that normally should have taken a much longer time than it did. To be as effective as it is. it is, you know, and so that's such a huge blessing and a testament to the, his brilliance. And so we were both awestruck by um, the tenacity that he had and the effectiveness of his the mission and um, the the campaign that he put out there, you know. And so yeah, he he did he did his thing, and so I, we, I was in awe listening to the podcast and being alive with them just to hear the stories um just so down to earth talking about where he's come from and just his interactions with being a black man in Colorado um and knowing that he was a black man it just it was amazing
1: yeah and i i want to as we talk the next you know little bit here there are a couple parts from his his story about how he ended up where he was that i wanted to touch base with you on but i need to start <laughs> with my one of my favorite parts was the Courtney comes back to life moment. <laughs> so, Courtney was on this call, like, not in a good place. <laughs> what had happened? Like, you had sprinklers going off since 2 a.m. or something. He was in his car, like, just not our normal Courtney. And, <laughs> and Jeff, we invited Jeff to share a spoken word poem. So, listen to this now.
2: When the people have lost faith in the elections and the so-called leaders push fear and protection from a mythical enemy with national security and the military supremacy is the corporate dependency. See, these are the signs of the rise of the fascists. A continued marginalization between the classes and mass media is consolidated and controlled and music becomes mindless and without soul. When there's no respect for intellect in the art forms, sexism is expected and considered the norm. Labor workers abused and denied their human rights while the voice of resistance falls silent in the night. Will America heed the warning signs early of what happened in the 1930s in Germany or will we give in, give up and give away our freedom gradually? for a so-called morality. When fallen gods find themselves powerless pawns of another man's system against all odds, and most of us spend our prime time behind bars, unaware our very essence is the sun, moon, and stars. When correctional facilities are full of illiteracy and the connection is no mystery, plagued with poor self-identity because you don't know your history and popular worldview reinforces the tendency. See, if we don't know where we've been, then we don't know where we're at, then we don't know where we're going and that's the reason I'm flowing because knowledge is the key to unlock the hell and return to the glory from whence we fell. I studied Garvey and Elijah, can't you tell? I wanna see truth and justice balanced on the scale, but you can't free people who don't know they are slaves. That's why we remain locked in our mental grave, but, When we live and love and light and lyrics lecture by night, electrified by the mic and amplified left and right. Speakers equalize, volumes peak, sound of distortion. My voice cracked with passion. I put the crowd in motion, born to manifest creation of polyrhythmic vibration to capture the imagination of a disenfranchised population, inspiring the mobilization towards self-determined liberation cause collective emancipation requires your participation when oil companies report record-breaking profit margins. And 800 million people in the world are starving. And 40 million people in Africa have a disease manufactured in the government labs and the salaries of athletes playing for the nation exceed the federal spending on public education. And every year we circumcise over 2 million girls. Someday I'll write the song that could change the world, but will we ever recognize where the real power lies? Are we ready to live? Are we willing to die? This is a movement. Don't let it pass you by, a revolution. And only the strong survive.
1: Whew. So, Courtney, what was it about that, in that moment with Jeff, that like brought you to life, hearing his, his work?
0: I mean, there are certain times um, in an activist life that we spend so much time inspiring others that we forget that we ourselves have to be inspired. We ourselves have to be grounded. We have to be awestruck and 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 motivated to continue doing this work. And just on that little level of my just tantrum and be having a bad day, um, not really feeling like I need to show up. That was a humbling, such a poignant and and, and timely thing to hear. You know, it, it just it just brought me right back to, hey, bro, relax. It ain't about you step the fuck up let's let, let's let, all right cool let me let me lace my Jordans back up I right, I just got dunked on but the game's not over yet you know what I mean so that's how I felt
1: it's kind of like often you're the person drawing people into the conversation and Jeff drew you into the conversation and you're like okay thank you okay yes I mean I was just in awe of I mean first of all that he can remember all of that like <laughs> remembering small pieces of different keynotes that I do <laughs> I'm wow but yeah he hit upon everything in that piece and um yeah I mean I guess in hearing that you you get a sense of his holistic understanding of what's going on of the systems of the interpersonal of all of it and that's probably what is like feeding his his work and how he was able to do things so quickly and shows you know I think it's a good reminder for us all of like you can't just go out willy-nilly and, you know, expect to make change because you're inspired to make change. Like, you have to connect and get behind the people like Jeff who know what they're doing. And, you know, like, we don't all need to be scamping around and thinking that we can create change on our own. Like, just get behind the strong ones, (laughs) you know?
0: I mean, I also think we're all strong. I think the true strength, also comes in the humility to know that this is not us. And th- what whichever way we're going to get to our desired mission the fastest is the way that we should be moving and the person who should be leading that charge. Like if we're doing this work in social justice and to leave out individuals who have been affected or impacted me- mostly by hate and, and harm and to leave them out of the conversation and hope we're doing good for them is actually... Contradictory to the mission, and so being led by those individuals and being in conversation and not leading a conversation by those individuals is just is the same thing, because we're all we're all leaders, but leaders need to be led at times as well.
1: And he said something, and we're going to play the clip right here about what was happening for him after Floyd was murdered.
2: Then George Floyd was murdered. Like months later, George Floyd is murdered. And folks, like I told you, I grew up in Longmont. Folks were calling me out the woodwork. White people were calling me day and night. (laughs) White folks was calling me. And, And you know what? Honestly, it was to validate their racism. Jeff, I know you, you're black. Help me process this. do some labor for me do some emotional labor for me and this one woman that i hadn't talked to since middle school since the eighth grade wanted to tell me called me up you know found me on facebook we were friends on Facebook, we friends friends on facebook but we ain't talking nothing she asked for my number calls me up and talks to me this is just horrible she said, I want to tell you about the three times that I use the N word in my life. I was like, I don't, I don't want to talk about, I don't want to talk about this. Why do you? So I hung up on her. I hung up on her and she's texting me, text, 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 just texting me multiple texts about how she's crying. She's upset. She doesn't know what she did wrong. She just doesn't understand. She wants to do something. If I've got a production coming up, she'll back it for me. She'll she'll be the producer. She'll pay for it. Anything, please just, you know, just make me feel okay about, about my racism.
1: So I think there's interesting points you makes here about this, like, first of all, this tension of like, why are you calling me? And wait, we do need leadership from BIPOC to do this. And he was kind of like a reluctant leader, right? Like, okay, I will do this. And I'm curious about the moment that he's saying here, like where he says, white folks were calling me to validate their racism. And I'm curious if you can help tease that out for me to understand that moment more from your view of the conversation or the the way in which white people are turning, let's say, specifically to Black people to help them process their white supremacy, confessing things, you know, like this woman that he mentioned who like wanted to tell stories about when she used the N-word. Because it's kind of this interesting moment where like, yes, it's important to be honest. It's also important to ask for like, is it okay to have this conversation? I'm just curious to hear your response to that. It
0: goes back and and follow the train of thought too because it's gonna sound crazy in the beginning, but it goes back to to slavery and the transatlantic passage. You know, um, a lot of individuals can't saw what we see as North America right now, and was like we cannot build and populate this land of North America without strength, without know how, without knowledge. You know. And we don't have the knowledge. And I'm speaking about white people. Then we don't have the knowledge. So let's go and do it in the most inhumane way where we don't have to give them the the, the praise for doing this. So we're going to create a system, i.e. white supremacy, to make sure we stay in power by doing the less, the least amount of actual work. And so fast forward till today where we talk about DEI. It's less, obviously, it's less invasive and less like seen. But it's like, I want my company to be known as a place where BIPOCs are welcome. So I'm going to lean on people who have been going through the trauma because they have the history with it. But when it comes down to it, this is still my fucking company. And I did that, you know?
1: And I wanted to still do the least amount of work.
0: Exactly. So tell me, Black man... um, How do I get um, out of my own way when it comes to, to hurting you? How do you help me to help you without really doing the work to help you? You know, so how can I be most comfortable in this DEI work? you know um obviously when i say white people i'm not talking about every white person you know i'm making a a, a generalization and if you feel weird about that that you may be the white person i'm talking about you know who's doing that <laughs>
1: right
0: you know and so that's just that's just honestly you know so um i would never i i, I wouldn't first off give white people the, all the power to say you are the problem however i, I i'm i'm a, a systemic issue that benefits why people that's, that's that's where i'm coming from and so i just wanted to say that
1: yeah oh that's that's like a big aha for me like the you know the roots of like i want to do as least work possible and it's something like i feel like i had to learn from all the great dei teachers out there is like you got to know your your limits and your boundaries and how much work i'm going to do and listen to what you're going to do and because i've been Taught and enculturated in a certain way doesn't come naturally, which is super depressing as like a empathic person who cares about people. I like to think I care about people, you know. It's very depressing to feel like I have to learn how to do this better. It's not even that I wasn't taught, it's because I was taught a different way, you know.
0: Yeah. I mean it's it's like everything you have to unlearn somethings to make room for the for who you are evolving into you know like when you grow up in a community where you have to protect yourself your conditioned tendencies are survival and the thing that you have to do for survival Emily you wouldn't know about and wouldn't be expected to do you know and so it doesn't make you a bad person. It makes you a different person. And I think when we do this DEI work, individuals want to black and white. I'm bad. I'm good. I'm anti-racist. I'm woke. We are all mixed. We're we're all bad and all good. And when I say we, I mean me too. All bad, all good, and one. And we're tr- we're all trying to survive now, which and le- and walking towards thriving, i.e., freedom. And so in order to do that, we have to be able to admit, like, I do not know actually how to love, how to be an empath, how to do this, or I was taught that this is the way to love. Now, as I evolve into a a person that I hope to be in the future for my kids, for my community, I'm seeing now what I was doing may not have been the best way, you know? And so like, if you talk to Hitler, or someone in that, like Nazis, someone loves those people. They they love their father, a mother, a sister, a brother to someone who looks at them like they're the world. They're amazing, you know? So it's like they have to now, when they evolve and God willing, they evolve to see that everyone should be loved the same way they love their loved ones. That's, that's a whole nother thing. They have to unlearn and then learn on top of that. So that's that's what I'm doing in my life right now.
1: I feel like the unlearning concept is getting thrown around a lot. It's a nice it's a nice way to say it. But like when you go to do it, it's a beast. You know, like we are a, we are so conditioned, the neuropathways of how to think about things, how to respond, like despite, you know, we could have great Open minded parents who have taught us wonderful ways to navigate the world, but we're inundated with media. Like we can't drive down the highway without seeing images that create and reinforce more neural pathways and to like to shift a thought pattern from one to the next. Um, And this is what we want to focus on in in our keynote work that we'll tell you guys more about later. But is that that habit yet, yeah, you know, the 66 days of like, you got to keep repeating, repeating, repeating and be relentless to unlearn. And um, it's hard. I mean, it's like it, that. I don't know, there's probably a metaphor for something. I guess like pulling yarn on a sweater, you start to pull one thing and like all these things unravel. And then you realize you have to pull every single one of those things that unraveled. And
0: Yeah, when you're unlearning something, it may be it probably takes more mental tenacity to unlearn than it does to learn. You know, like if you if you were a clean slate, it will be so easy to learn. But it's just like learning a language. If all you know is English, it's not that you have to unlearn, but you have to learn on top of something else that you know. You know, so it's a little hard. That's why kids can learn a language because they don't know the language, any language good enough. You know what I mean? So it's like, Oh, okay, cool. We talking Spanish? All right, let's get into it. We talking Mandarin? Let's do it.
1: And they don't, they don't care about making mistakes too, which as an adult is something that really catches us up. You, you hear my kids? They'll be like da, da da da, and we're like, what? And they're like, oh da 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 da, and they they find a new way. They could care less, but we're all caught in our ego. Yeah, and...
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. The best way, and my 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 business partner speaks on this too when he's um, when we're speaking, he that if you had a childlike intelligence. You will be br- you will be brilliant beyond compare because you will be afraid to make mistakes. And most of the the the, the celebrities, um, the musicians, and the artists that we think about, they when they get on stage, they don't care that, and it comes through in their art, and that's why they shine. But if you went if you went on there afraid to be embarrassed, you would be a horrible artist, you know. But when you get up there and you bare your soul and you're unapologetic about who you are, like. Like heavy metal. What the hell's going on in that music? But there's a, <laughs> they are up there doing their thing. They are doing it 110%. And and they, they're millionaires. They're living their, their best lives, you know? And so I know. <laughs> and so just whatever if we if we're serious about DEI work as I am, as, as I see that you are, Emily, I think we, we have to be unapologetic, balanced with love in this work, and then we won't fail. You know, we started this whole journey not knowing shit about podcasting, not knowing shit about each other. The only thing we knew and the only thing we hoped is that the other person was true to the work of social justice. That's how I like,
1: I know, we could have really jumped in. (laughs) It was a huge leap of faith.
0: I'm just saying, I'm just saying, like, I was like, damn, bro. Like, I don't know shit about this woman. She don't know shit about me. This could either go well or it could be a whole fucking bad experiment. And so, like, I've. We'll find it, out it, soon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got a little gift for you, Emily. <laughs> Let's
1: see how this goes. Yeah, oh, Yeah. Yeah. No, I, you know, I was listening to Dr. Uh, Amanda Kemp the other day, and she's a DEI teacher as well. And she really talks a lot, and this feels so relevant to this conversation, about the importance of self-care when you decide to do this work. Because unlearning, re- re-patterning your brain takes a ton of energy. Going with patterns is the most efficient thing your brain can do. It is cheap energy. It is as Easy, easy as as possible, so yeah, it's, I really appreciate her her messaging because she's not talking about neuropathways and stuff. I talk, I I can see it from that perspective though of like it's going to take a whole lot of higher brain capacity to reprogram to consciously shift patterns. Um, and so self care, you know, not multitasking, getting sleep, eating good food, you know,
0: and neuroplasticity. Two things first. Neuroplasticity is um, is is a blessing. If if we couldn't have reshape our neural pathways or redesign, I think the world would be even in a, a worse place. Like if you learn if you learn something one time and that was is what you were stuck with, that's it. God, <laughs> can you imagine?
1: Oh my god,
0: that would have been crazy. And also too, when people say finding out what you do to to refresh. It's something huge because when see, people look at my life, they say you're not balanced. You don't go on vacations. You don't do this. You don't. Hi-. However, this right now, what we doing? Like, I didn't have the best of moods when I came on here. Now this is this is <laughs> no. feeding this is feeding my soul. You know what I mean? Like, this is like, thank you, Emily. I needed that. You know, like, but some people need to go on a vacation for about two months and have like I recharge by this work. And, and, and feel blessed that this is what I want to be doing for the rest of my life so I can feel like I, I don't work and I don't need to retire because I am not working in the beginning. I'm living a life where I get recharged by social activism. I get recharged by the struggle of freedom. That is my taking care of myself. That is how I do that. And so like learning what best works for you, like with Jeff, you can tell that he recharges through the arts.
1: Right. Even telling a story, you could tell him. He, he just like lights up.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 And so, like, what we do as humans, we like to put everyone in boxes. And you have to recharge with yoga. You have to recharge with eight hours of sleep. There is so like eight hours of sleep is good. You know, okay, feels good. You get to, you get the energy, but that was. Oh, the human body needs eight hours. Really? It was one time when the like coffee was bad for the human body. There was one time that milk was bad for the human body.
1: Oh, and then saturated fat is evil for a while, and the sugar industry <laughs> does really well. Exactly,
0: exactly. <laughs> and so the the brain and the body, there's so many unknowns that medicine is just a practice. Health and wellness is something that that you have to literally feel on your own at certain times. Like there are some tried and true things that the body is this way, but when it comes to taking care of yourself, you and you alone are gonna have to do an exploration to figure that out. And again, that comes with freedom. When you can just be, when you can be ignited, when you can figure out what it is that excites you and what is your passion, when you have the the luxury of time because you don't have to be distracted by certain systems set in place. Like there are so many things that take away from you ever learning how to take care of yourself.
1: And this goes back to what we were talking about before with like, you can't shortcut a process like this. You know, you can't do the least amount of work possible because like if you're if you're like, "Oh, I want to, you know, show up for social justice, but I'm constantly distracted, I have no time for it. I'm, you know, I don't have my feet underneath me or, you know, like whatever that is. It, you're not going to create change in yourself and you're not you're not going to you have to be supported and you can't shortcut that process. You can't lean on other people. You can't read enough books to to create change.
0: That means you really don't want to do it. That's when people say, oh, I want to learn how to read, but you never read. Or oh, I want to be better at this, but you never do it. So if you really want to be better at DEI work, you can ask, what's the easiest way to be better at DEI work? That means you really don't really want to be good at DEI work. You want to have the illusion that you're good at this. you know. And so that, that's very um, damaging to the person that is that harm is being ca- caused to, you know, like when either I would rather a person hate me, and I know, like, look, I hate you because of the color of your skin. I hate you because of who you are, where you come from, versus the people that aren't willing to love me the way I f- want to be loved or the way I feel like I need to be appreciated. What I've learned with you, with the work that I, what I that I do, is this work is kind of hard and easy at the same time. It's easy because it has a, a simple solution, and that's building relationships. If you really want to do DI work first, you can't go into a room and say, hey, everybody, what are the things that you hate about white people? What are the things that you hate about black people? Like It should be, let's learn to appreciate our differences through our relationship. Let me learn about your culture while you learn about mine. And I think DEI work will be so much easier and so much more attainable and less rigid and uh, uh, some, some shit you check off with a box, you know?
1: Right, and that's why that's exactly why I, with my clients, I, I work with psychological safety and trust. Because if you're trying to have these harder conversations, they're not going to go well or they won't happen if you don't feel connected to your team, especially during COVID when you're working separately and the informal trust building is not happening. Like it is, it is just, it's about relationships and the closer you are to people, that's why you have people who will say really racist, overtly racist statements, but then be like, and I actually do have a best friend who is black because you, but you don't, consider because of your relationship with that person, it feels something different. Like it feels the people that are close to us, I think in our mind, we start categorizing them differently than of course. the other people.
0: <laughs> That's what you hear a phrase. Oh, you, you're a good black person or you're a different white woman or you're this is like, nah, I'm black. Um, you shouldn't do that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, we're not a monolith, and we're not all the same. However, if if you disrespect one, you disrespect all. If I say, hey, all women are fucked up, then I just disrespected you, Emily, even though like, that's just the honest truth. Like, I I can't say that. I just disrespected you. I disrespected your daughters. I disrespected your mom. I disrespected your aunt in one fell swoop. You know what I'm saying? So like... That's just, that's how I feel. Like DEI work is simple and difficult at the same time.
1: Oh, man. So I um, there's one other topic that I wanted to touch upon and want to like basically use something that Jeff said as a touching, like, I don't want you to, uh, you know, offer an analysis of what he said, but just see if it like sparks something for you because I just thought it was a really- poignant moment. So this is a moment when he is talking about what it was like to be I think he was the only if not just one of few black boys in his high school. So listen to this.
2: You know, we had moved from Alabama from rural Alabama to rural Colorado and it was literally like night and day. And I don't know if I would be a performer had I not been in that uh alienated like that had I not been an anomaly in my uh you know in school the only black kid in my class and um so I was teased a lot and called names a lot and I remember when it shifted for me uh becoming a class clown there was a a girl her name was Heather and we had to write stories uh for our class and so she wrote her story about a monkey named Jeff who sat in his seat sideways. And so I used to always sit in my seat sideways because kids were always throwing stuff at me or, you know, making fun of me or pointing at me. So I was always trying to keep my eye on them. And I remember at this point, I was in third grade. Uh, she called it a monkey named Jeff and so i started making monkey noises and woo 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 i started doing that and all the kids laughed and even my teacher laughed and at that point i began to use humor and being a class clown as a way to deter the hatred and the and kids making fun of me
1: so what really strikes me and kind of, like, I was kind of taken aback in terms of like, wow, that's that's, in, that's intense, um, was when he said he doesn't know if he would be a performer if he wasn't an anomaly. And I'm interested just to hear any comments that you have on, on performance. Well, here's where I'm coming from. So, like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I do a lot of cross-cultural work. And part of... That work, I, you know, I've been to over 30 countries and part of going to another country is learning the culture of the country, learning the language, um, dressing differently, behaving differently, earning trust differently, all these different things. So in some way, that's performance, but it, that to me feels more like adaptation, like respectful adaptation. And I think that it's what he's talking about is is really different in his own School having to, I'm just curious to hear your reactions.
0: Thing about poverty um, is exposure or a lack or a lack of, and so when you when you start to attain a certain level of of wealth or a certain level of experience, you start to look at the individuals around you because they're there. When I'm in medical school and I'm seeing my counterparts are white and they are successful, that starts to be like, that is what it takes to do it. So either you step up and perform in the way that they're doing, or you're not going to be as successful um, as they are. You know, And so the mind easily starts to adapt to survive. I had to survive in that. It takes very different type of people to see that and combat that as like, you know what? I don't want to survive because millionaires don't survive. Like cultural shifters don't survive. They set trends. They, they always blaze a path on them o- on their own you know so that's why we read history books not mainly filled with millionaires but people who were the first to do what they did the first to think about things in the way or the first to align themselves or just not perform in a way that's of the norm so you are the anomaly you know, so when you look up to Ruth Bader Ginsburg is not because she was the normal white housewife back in the day. It's because actually she was so different, you know, not because, and, and there are probably so many housewives that were as brilliant or probably more brilliant than Ruth, but because she was the first to set the bar and, and buck that system, we read about her. You know, so when I think about in my life, As a black doctor, I'm expected to perform and and, and, and adopt to what the world views as appropriate or professional. You know, I'm supposed to have the kids and the, the house and not really stir up Shit, and and then know my lane, and and not cause trouble, and just appreciate the fact that I was allowed in the system, you know, that wasn't built for me. And so, like, when you go against that system, it's very difficult. But think about me—I'm an anomaly, you know, because there are other black doctors, there are other black doctors that um, have scored higher than me, have done a lot of things, you know, in in the medical world. But they're not anomalies because they conform to a system. And, and and did well within that system, and so with Jeff, when he said he is an anomaly, he was. You know, um, he thrived in a, a school when he was the only one, only black child. He grew up, and like you said, he he perf- he used performance as a way to speak about the injustices that he saw, to entertain, to 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 affect change. Because as a culture, we like to be entertained. That's why a basketball player makes three hundred million dollars, where a teacher will make thirty thousand dollars a year. Like that's crazy to me. The teacher, the, <laughs> like, well, it's ridiculous. You know. So yeah. So we want to we want to be um, entertained, that perform for, and uh, instead of actually take again getting to success the easiest way possible. Getting to a desired action the easiest way possible is to watch a movie instead of reading a book. <laughs> you know, like that's just the truth. Let me read about let me watch the movie about Tulsa instead of reading about Black Wall Street and the atrocities that happened. You know, like it's uh, it's 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 different.
1: This whole like easy way easiest way possible. It's interesting because when you yeah it comes to your brain, there isn't there there isn't a shortcut to rework your brain and to to create something new.
0: When we do our keynote, we we talk about the sixty six. I was like, I can't wait to do that because if it's just sixty six days to do for a habit to change, you do like like start to get into your DNA when you you multiply that time and then you do it more. You become an expert and you do it more. Like so, if we really want to do something as impactful as DEI work and social change. I mean, sixty six days is just a, like top of the like the beginning of the change you know and so
1: yeah the beginning yeah because it's almost like especially if you're a leader and you change your habits you put the focus in there then because we're such social beings the people around you start to just pick it up they start to mimic and we're we're mimickers and we we look like when there's like a stressful moment we look to the top what's that person doing <laughs> what are they doing yeah yeah Well, do you have any other things from Jeff's episode that you want to bring up?
0: I wanna, I wanna have. I got a question for you. What like when you hear questions like or or comments like, um, "I am the the only black child in this class," or "I was the only black person in this in my office," I was the only person of color at my job. What comes up for you as a white woman? You know what I mean? Like, I like you're you an entrepreneur, you're a boss. You know, like, what comes up for you as a leader of your company if your whole company was white? Because at first, I'm sure, I, I'm, I'm going to give you some more context, even. Like, I'm, I'm sure you were just hiring folks. Like, so does that mean that bias, like, that implicitly you were just hiring people that look like you because it was easier and more trusting you see what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't know. Like,
1: what comes up for you? You're like how you asking like, how does that happen in a workplace? Like, how does that...
0: No, no, no. If just... When, when you hear things like, I was the only one of color in this whole thing, as a person that hired, that you're an entrepreneur, you could hire and fire, like, that could be a story for you. Like, your company can only employ white people, you know? And so, like, what comes up for you being a person that could be a part of that problem?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I guess there are a couple of things. Like in, in respect to Jeff's comment, you know, he's the only Black kid in high school. Like that just makes me feel like that must have been so isolating and it must have been really hard to navigate that while your identity is forming and like the complexity of what's going on there. And um, so I just like feel for him even though i don't know that experience um yeah i well, i guess i'm not entirely sure what like like the question is like what i could what i could do like what
0: you know when certain things happen as a leader you have to look back and like what was my role in in that you know like
1: oh so i used to work for a company and i I was doing a lot of different roles at that company. And and sometimes I'd step in and do marketing. I mean, not marketing. I did a lot of marketing, but um, do staff interviews. And this was an international company. And so we would joke about how like whoever the um, staff director was at that time would start to shift and mold the company because we'd hire new instructors, like maybe you know, half of the instructors came back and half of them were new. So like, if we had a really hyper-intellectual staff director, then all of the people that were hired were intellectuals, you know? And I I could notice when I was doing interviews that there were, it was just the familiarity bias thing that led to building trust, which then led to different questions, like that whole process, how like, if they were from the the Northeast and they went to a school that I knew which in itself were more likely to be white folks, then implicitly I'm like, oh, you're something familiar, you know, in the back of my head, because like, you're like me. And so I had like a little bit more ground to to stand upon with them. So I got to see this process of, you know, if you just let yourself kind of float along with your biases, you're just continually going to pull people who look and sound like you closer and open the door for them. Um and I don't think it, there's like a a malicious intent of that of like I'm not trying to push people who don't look and sound like me away. It's just it's a little bit easier. Again, coming back to the easy, <laughs> easy and hard. It's a little bit easier to trust what feels familiar when I am being asked to put my neck out for someone who I don't actually know. Um so I could definitely see that that playing out. Yeah, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's an animal thing. Like, if this animal looks like me, I know what to what what to expect. Right. It's, right.
1: Exactly. It's not a predator.
0: Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Like like animals do it, humans do it. You know. So when people say, "Why do you only? Why do white people only date white people and black people only date white people and black people and Mexicans only date Mexicans?" Is because they look like them, so they kind of know what to expect if you're dealing with that person. You know, like if 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 a a white woman is dating me, like she could say some shit. I'm like, yo, what the fuck are you talking about? But if she's dating if she's dating a white guy, he's like, yeah, babe, I agree with you.
1: Right, and there's so much complexity already in a relationship that if you're trying to like, how do I make this easier? How do I make this easier?
0: Exactly, our brain is is controlling the millions of millions of operations going on in our body. So if they can check off one thing, they don't got to think about your brain per day. Like it's like, okay, cool. I don't got to think about that. So our break obviously quickly goes to, Oh, this person looks like me. So I know what they like in this aspect, the foods, their vacations, the this and that, the kids, the, the religion. Oh, let me just stay within my box. So that's one less thing that I have to think about, you know? So, that's that's just how um we 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 are set up and it just goes into every aspect so even right back to DEI work it's difficult be not because the actual work is difficult is that our brains don't know how to to process like after George Floyd i think this work ramped up even more because we were forced it wasn't like okay now you saw my guy die under the the knee of a, like, you saw that shit. Like, (laughs) you know, and then we were in COVID, so it wasn't like a news thing, but we had to get busy back to work, you know? And so, like, everything was almost in the best, worst time for DEI for us to slow down and really think about social justice in a different kind of way. And so, it was like, okay, now, but it's unfortunate that now it's just another thing For some people to capitalize on, to make money on, to check a box on, to say certain things, with it being a life and death situation that is DEI, um, DEI work. So it's just like, how do we balance capitalism and DEI work? You know, like that's the honest truth. How do you make money on the pain of others while bringing, like, humanizing a struggle and capitalizing? on the struggle so that you can also eat food and bring food back to your, your fam. That that's the tightrope. That's the tightrope, you know? And so, um, that's the simplest thing about selling drugs. Like it's, it's easy. It is what it is. (laughs) Like Hey, you sell it, get it good. Have a good day. You feel good. Have when you really care about people you and, but also you need to make money. And also if you don't care about shit, making money is easy. When you don't give a damn about nothing, but if you got DEI work here, someone struggling with social, um, uh, um, white supremacist um, society, um, systems in place that do that, but you also got to bring it back to the bottom line so that you can eat and live a life for you and your family, that's creativity.
1: Oh, man. Well, um, yeah, just a huge thank you to Jeff for joining us. We're definitely going to be you know when events come up that he's putting on or opportunities come up we'll definitely repost on our accounts um please do join us I, instagram is you know, we're at the humanized podcast on Instagram. That's where most of the the conversations are happening right now. Um, So come on over there um, and we'll keep you in the loop with Jeff's work and a huge thank you to him for joining. Thank you. And thank you to you. Exactly.
0: Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Humanized (laughs) family. We love you guys. Um, Let's get it. Let's do this work. Y'all. We love you.
1: (laughs) Thanks for joining us on this episode of Humanize. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Join us on Instagram or Facebook to continue this conversation at The Humanize Podcast.
0: Let us know if you want to learn more about the professional trainings we offer. And of course, tune in next time as we continue the work. Thank you and much love.